You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. I'll be sharing some bite-sized brain science, thought-provoking questions, and mind-bending ideas about how our brains work, change, learn, and adapt, and how we can use the knowledge emerging from the field of neuroscience to open up new possibilities and make the progress we want in all areas of our lives. Hello again, and welcome to this week's episode. Today, I'm going to look at the ideas and thinking that we commonly have about mistakes. And I'm also going to talk about the idea of a strategic mistake. That is, when a deliberate mistake can be the right move to make. Now, I understand how this might seem counterintuitive, and I realise that's a word that probably comes up a lot here. But let's explore a little and see why we try so hard to avoid mistakes, and if we should adopt more of a fail-forward attitude. Mistakes, generally speaking, are things we try to avoid. This is the result of both conditioning and experience. They can be costly, damaging, wasteful or painful. So it makes sense that we do our best to avoid them. Mistakes can, at their most extreme, result in loss of life and disaster, such as car crashes and nuclear accidents. In less dramatic ways, they can affect our lives too, in competition, for example, like show jumping or gymnastics, where we're graded based not just on how well or creatively we perform, but also on how few mistakes we make. All in all, mistakes get a pretty bad rap. And I'm talking about the mistakes that are not due to negligence or total carelessness. I'm talking about the mistakes that will happen from time to time anyway. That's one of the things about our brains, by the way. They're far more powerful than computers, but also far more prone to getting things wrong. It's always interesting being human, isn't it? Our economic world has also evolved to look for risk-averse ways of achieving goals. Quite often, of course, these goals are financial. And in this context, the prevention of mistakes often comes at the cost of serendipity and innovation. Gary Klein talks about this in his book, Seeing What Others Don't. And he goes into a lot of detail about how organisations and companies say that what they want is innovation and ideas. But as large organisations, they're also very much about preventing mistakes which of course tends to prevent the rollout of innovative ideas because they, naturally enough, tend to have some teething problems, aka mistakes. Now, I'm also reminded of Cal Newport's description of the infamous Building 20 at MIT in his book, Deep Work, and I couldn't help but think that it would never be allowed today. He tells tales of floors being moved, things being rearranged to accommodate equipment in ways that sound, quite frankly, a little chaotic, to say the least. But this was the environment of possibility that spawned discoveries and innovations galore. And don't get me wrong, I think that yes, of course, we need health and safety measures in our workplaces. But I wonder if we had had today's stringent uh, requirements for health and safety measures, how many of those innovations would still have happened. Now, let's look at another aspect of mistake prevention culture. If you've got kids, or even if you've ever been in close proximity to one, Then you'll understand why parents tend to use the phrase, be careful, a lot. These days we know a little better and parents are now advised to point out the hazards to their children by inviting them to notice them. I've got two kids who fortunately are more or less past the falling over stage. But I remember the full body parental response that a wailing child with a grazed knee would trigger. And actually, when you're primed to listen for that, you pretty much have the same response to any wailing child, whether it's yours or not. Do you know what I mean? I actually remember one evening hearing what sounded like a fire engine in tears and my then six-year-old, who had accidentally been 
catapulted from the neighbour's trampoline and landed headfirst, came running in. Fortunately, he survived unscathed. And from that time on, the, the kiddie collective on the street were actually a bit more diligent about the net enclosure fastenings on the trampoline. And listen, I, I'm not actually sure if this is apocryphal or not. So please tell me if you know the answer or if you know whether this is true or not. But I was told around that time that trampoline related trips to the emergency room were so common that they had their own designated intake code at hospitals. Leading on from that, of course, we come to the mistake aversion training that we know as school. Now, again, my kids are in a Waldorf school and it has a really interesting approach to risk because it encourages children to do lots of outdoor things that challenge them physically. And yes, mistakes are made and things get scraped or sometimes even broken. But that doesn't result in a banishment of the activity because it's accepted that mistakes and accidents do happen and the overall value of the experience is worth the risk. There's as much physical learning as there is academic and the whole ethos is to balance the learning and the development across the mind, the body and the person. I see the benefits of this system when I watch them solve problems or tackle projects and I'm really happy that the opportunity to give them this kind of education was available. But like many people, I went to a regular commoner garden school and the chances are you did too. And if you have kids, there may be in a similar system to the one you went through. We spend our school years trying to get the right answer. Not making mistakes is a big part of the training in traditional mainstream education. Now, I don't know about you, but the simple spelling and maths tests that were administered every Friday by my primary school teachers resulted in celebrations at home when I got all the answers right and a fairly stern inquiry as to why I'd failed to do so if I got some wrong. All of which, of course, was further reinforcement from a very young age that we should not make mistakes. We needed to get the right answer. Now, again, I'm not going to go too far down the education rabbit hole today, but I do want to mention something from John Holt's classic book, How Children Learn. Holt was a fantastic observer of how children make discoveries. I've recommended this book to hundreds of parents over the last few years. His writing style and insights are such a pleasure to read, as well as being really helpful to anyone wanting to get an understanding of how early learning works and how it can be so easily inhibited. Anyone who's watched kids play will know that they learn with abandon through a series of experiments that are synonymous with play. They're not interested in a right answer or a particular outcome. They're just seeing what's possible. Holt observes that kids who are introduced to a new object or set of materials will just try stuff without any particular method or strategy, but they'll work things out pretty well when left to their own devices. In fact, they'll quite often come up with novel solutions or uses for things. He points out, though, that where it tends to go wrong is when adults insist on teaching a child how to do it properly, at which point the child very often loses interest. It's a very striking insight. Mistakes, of course, can't be eliminated entirely, and there's no need to, in fact. The pursuit of zero mistakes can actually hinder progress by becoming a form of toxic perfectionism. I've seen this again and again with people who are starting businesses, and they think that everything has to be right before they start. This very often becomes a lengthy, if not permanent, delay to making a start on their plans. This idea that everything has to be perfect is, of course, a fallacy. And business, much like life itself, is a constant evolution. And many might recognise the voices of their past and these desires to get it right. Episode 4 covers some of those concepts around these echoes or inner critics, if you want to check it out. Now, there's something not just a little ironic about the drive to eliminate mistakes, too, because making mistakes is actually acknowledged as one of the keys to neuroplasticity, 
Uh, hey, hey, <laughs> bingo. Um, I really should print up a card. I, have I done an episode yet where I haven't mentioned neuroplasticity? Well, I mean, it is a, it's a very important word and understanding how to facilitate it is also pretty important if we want to progress our own growth and change and effectiveness. But I really probably should run a sweepstake or something. <laughs> there are, of course, some positive mistakes, happy accidents, we sometimes call them, or accidental discoveries. Serendipity is a slightly different track, but often serendipitous events lead to these positive mistakes. Maybe we need a new word to describe them. How about, how about a pro-stake? I mean, the whole mistake thing sounds like it's negative already, doesn't it? So maybe, yeah, maybe we should talk about pro-stakes instead. So some of the famous pro-stakes that have been massively successful include post-it notes, for example. Apparently 3M were trying to create a new adhesive, but the result of their work was a very, very weak adhesive. So here we have innovation, which failed in its initial brief, and it led to a mistake and they got it wrong, but that wrong thing turned out to be a great solution for something else. So they weren't actually trying to create a weak adhesive, but when they got it, they realized after a few years, it has to be said, that they could create something that everybody loved with it. Penicillin, cornflakes and safety glass are a few more accidental discoveries, by the way. And somewhere along the line, I remember reading a fictional account of how the roasting of meat was invented. Now, I have no idea who wrote this or what the story was called, but I loved it and it's always stayed with me. So my half-remembered version is as follows, and I hope the original author will forgive my retelling and any omissions or embellishments I've added. So picture this scene. It's a Neolithic village somewhere and night is drawing in and there's a campfire blazing. Somewhere around the little settlement of wooden structures, one of the village dogs pricks up his ears. He hears a snuffling sound. He smells something unmistakable, a boar. He slinks off to investigate. No one pays any attention, not even the other dogs. He comes on the boar who's happily turning over the ground looking for buried tastiness and he starts barking. The startled boar's flight or fight kicks in and he hightails it straight towards the village. The campfire get-together scatters and children are scooped up as the shrieking of the boar comes closer at rather alarming speed. In blind panic, the boar runs straight into one of the wooden constructions and wild with fear and panic rage, he starts to thrash and kick wildly, shrieking and seemingly unable to find his way back out. Someone has the idea that if they throw a burning stick into the house, the boar will run out to avoid it. It's the best plan anyone has, so the stick is launched. Unfortunately, it lands blocking the boar's exit and the rest is history. The sparks catch the dried timbers and the thatch roof and very quickly the entire structure is ablaze. The shrieking gets worse for a few moments, but then it stops altogether. The next morning, the villagers are inspecting the charred remains of both the house and the boar. He does smell damn good. Someone pokes the roasted carcass and absentmindedly licks his finger. His eyes widen. The villagers fall on the roasted carcass and the world has changed forever. The roasting of meat has been invented. It's a mistake that paid dividends for all time. Of course, the road from that first boar to our barbecues wasn't over at that point. In the original story, as far as I can remember, the villagers' next step in this culinary journey was to deliberately drive animals into houses and set them alight. 
But this, of course, was quite a lot of work and there was a lot of house building to be done. So the process was refined and realisations such as, well, we could actually kill the animal before roasting it and maybe not use a full house as an oven. This, this thinking streamlined the process, but you get the idea. We've been making valuable mistakes all throughout our history. And this leads me to my next point. As I've mentioned before, I enjoy solving Sudoku puzzles. And because these puzzles are so much based on pattern recognition, they give me plenty of time to think. I'm not the fastest on the uptake with some things, and this is something that's also played out in my kendo. I really marvel at the other guys in the dojo who are just so observant when it comes to their opponent's slightest movements. But for me, that sort of observation takes hundreds of repetitions, and my brain's not quite wired for it. Now, on the other hand, I can synthesize the commonality in different threads of a conversation or vastly different books without any problem. So I've got that going for me. But the other kind of linkage takes a lot of work. Now, what I have noticed is that the longer I persist with it, the more the patterns emerge and I can rely on those patterns because I've seen them over and over again. And in these patterns, I've observed a point that I call the strategic mistake juncture. So in a game of Sudoku, there'll often be a sort of impasse where you've got as far as you can go, noted all your options that might fill a certain position, but you really have no way of telling which is the correct way forward at this point. So at that stage, my strategy is to look for which mistake would be the most beneficial, which one gives me the most information going forward. If I have two options to fill in that space and I pick the wrong one, I lose a life. But I also know that if the answer I choose was the wrong one, then the other answer must be the correct one. But we can take it further too. Choosing the correct place to be open to a mistake and sacrificing a life unlocks other information when we do insert the right answer. Many of us will experience something similar to this as we experiment with A-B testing on Facebook ads, for example. On the one hand, we may be experimenting with copy and running a similar set testing audiences. When we compare the results and have a look at the patterns that emerge, we can decide whether our copy or our audience is performing better and then tweak our strategy accordingly. In a conversation with my very serious about his gaming teenager recently, I asked him about his strategies when he has to take risk to get to a new level. He knows his terrain in his game so well that he has an almost embodied understanding of the risks to, involved and he can assess in the blink of an eye really which option to take. And interestingly, but as a pertinent aside, I recently met with his teacher to discuss his progress. And as we drove home with his sister, he asked me what his teacher had said. So I started with, you know, a list of the positive things she'd said, like you do. And he interrupted me. What about the bad stuff? He asked. <laughs> and his sister, who's not a gamer, by the way, was bemused in the back seat. What do you want to know the bad stuff? She asked with a tone that only a superior older sibling can muster. And he responded without flinching. So I can work on it. My mind was momentarily blown by the maturity of this statement, but it reminded me very much of what Susan McGonigal talks about in her book Super Better. As a game designer, McGonigal refers to a lot of research on regular gamers and how the quick succession of learning opportunities and feedback in uh, computer games and the dopamine hit that that brings increases self-efficacy in regular gamers. And here was my proof. My 13-year-old son was more interested in what he could improve on than in the external validation of praise from someone else. Hubert Jolie, the CEO who was responsible for the turnaround of the Best Buy chain, in his book, uh, The Heart of Business, reflects on how important it is and how difficult it is to be able to take feedback. 
And of course, if we can't find a way to welcome feedback, then we've got to live with the risk of perpetually making the same mistakes. Circling back to Sudoku for a minute, there's a very simple way of explaining the strategic mistake. If we've got a 50-50 option of getting the solution to this part of the puzzle right or wrong, well, we could try to avoid that mistake, but that might mean we take twice as long to solve the puzzle. So we need to ask ourselves, can a mistake improve our efficiency? Can it teach us things that we'd otherwise miss if we insist on the ambitious, if not impossible, task of a zero mistake career? Of course, there are other things that we can also bring to bear here. Do you know the classic puzzle about the ball and the bat? It's a maths question, so buckle up. If you buy a ball and a bat for $1.10 and the bat costs a dollar more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Now, our brains really like to do things quickly and many of us will intuitively answer 10 cents. But that's not actually the right answer. And this is another difference between a mistake and a strategic mistake. This mistake of assuming that we can guess the answer is one that we can avoid by taking the time to check. The answer in this instance, of course, is that if we take the dollar out of the equation, it leaves 10 cents. And when we divide that between the two items, it's five cents. So the bat costs $1.05 and the ball costs five cents. Maybe it's just me, but it seems like this puzzle has been around for an awfully long time and that bat and ball have not increased in price at all. <laughs> Definitely not keeping up with inflation. Now, I guess we can admit that we don't live in a perfect world and unless we are some category of miracle, then none of us is perfect either. So as we know, we're entering the age of authenticity and authenticity is not about perfection. And the world isn't perfect. It's far from it. So unless you're some kind of miracle, you're probably not perfect either. And authenticity is much more about admitting that we're human, that we're fallible and that we're doing our best. So maybe it's time to embrace what mistakes can bring us and imbue them with the optimism of discovery rather than the fear of failure and punishment. Every mistake that we make and are mindful of is a new piece of data that we can use to improve if that's what we want to do. Making mistakes is part and parcel of progress and change. And I wonder if we can be more willing to accept that mistakes can make a positive contribution to our thinking and learning. That's all for this week. And thank you for listening to me and my podcasting mistakes and progress, work in progress. References to the books are in the show notes as always. And don't forget to check out ambitionincubator.com forward slash BBC if you'd like to join a collaborative reading group with me. I will see you next time. Thanks again. Bye. You've been listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, your weekly source for brain science tools, tips and techniques. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's why I want to make sure that every single episode contains game changers with the potential to elevate your performance and enjoyment to the next level in all areas of life. If you want to catch up between shows, check the show notes for my links. Meanwhile, if you hit subscribe right now, you'll always be first to hear when the next episode is available. Until then, my friend, imagine the possibilities. Thank you.